Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's likely you've seen Lindsay Adario's photographs. For more than two decades, she's captured images from conflicts around the world. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time Magazine. She's a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, and she was awarded a Pulitzer for international reporting. Lindsay's also a Connecticut native, and she's released a new book called Of Love and War. She joins us today from NPR Studios in Washington, D.C. Lindsay, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I was thinking uh, as I look through your book and um, from being a journalist for many years, when we see photographs from uh, conflict zones, whether it's in a newspaper or a magazine, uh, we don't know very much about the person behind the lens. Instead, we're focusing on the image before us. And I was thinking about how dangerous your job is. And in the book, you include details um, of things that have happened to you while covering stories in places like Iraq and Libya, including in in 2011 when you and uh, three other journalists were held by the Libyan army. Can you tell us what happened? Well, what happened in Libya, we were covering the popular uprising in 2011, and I was working with Tyler Hicks, Anthony Shadid, and Steve Farrell for the New York Times. And uh, we were working the front line, and I, uh, me and Tyler had been working on the front line uh, for about two weeks at that point. And uh, I was getting ready to head back east to Benghazi, which was sort of a safer area further away from the front line. And we were in the town of Ajdabia, and Gaddafi's troops uh, were coming closer and closer, so they were pushing in from the west. And we were working uh, sort of alongside the rebels. We were covering the war from the perspective of the rebels. And uh, as Gaddafi's troops pushed in closer, we knew that there was a risk that they might overrun the city that we were in. And we had to sort of make a decision as to how long to stay. And as journalists, and of course, as photographers, we always want to stay as long as we possibly can, because we want the freshest photos, we want uh, pictures of combat, and we want pictures of wounded. So we uh, got a call that Gaddafi's troops were in the city. Our driver, Mohammed, got a call from his brother who was working with the BBC. And we had to, we decided to stay a bit longer to keep trying to cover the fighting. And by the time we made a decision to pull out uh, east toward Benghazi, um, we ran directly into one of Gaddafi's checkpoints. And uh, they were incredibly hostile because Gaddafi had made many announcements saying, uh, if you see journalists, they're all spies, you should kill them. Um, We had all, anyone covering the popular uprising in Libya had entered illegally uh, from Egypt because it was the only way to cover the war. Gaddafi didn't want journalists in the east covering the fighting. So uh, we were taken and uh, we were put face down in the dirt, uh, had guns put to our head. Uh, They were about to execute us. Each one had a gun put to our heads. And um, they decided not to. They said, we can't shoot them, we're American. Uh, The commander said, we can't shoot them, they're American. And so instead they tied us up, uh, blindfolded us, placed us in vehicles uh, on the front line. 
and held us there for hours as bombs and bullets rained around us. They beat us. uh, They threatened us with execution. And this went on uh, over the course of six days. Uh, We were put in prison. Um, We couldn't speak to one another except for one night when we were in a prison cell together alone. Um, but we could hear each other getting uh, beaten and groped, and but we couldn't speak. So it was uh, it was terrifying. Did you have faith that you would be able to go home again? You know, the thing about being kidnapped is you don't know and you don't have any control. And I think that is the scariest part. I mean, I think any one of us can endure, you know, getting punched, getting uh, threats or whatever you have to endure because the human spirit is cap- goes into this sort of survival mode. But I think the scary thing is the unknown. So for me, that's sort of what I was consumed with, not knowing if I would survive, if I might be raped. Um, there were and there, you know, there are a lot of unknowns in that situation. Uh, in your new book of love and war, uh, we see photographs from that time that you spent in Libya. Uh, how did you decide to include the photographs that you did? Because you've been doing this now for more than 20 years, taking thousands of photographs. I'm just curious if you could walk us through that process. Sure. I mean, I think um, first I'll answer to the fact that um, when we were taken in Libya, everything we owned was stolen. We had uh, all the photographs I'd taken, my computer, our, our bags, my shoes off my feet. And so a few days before that happened, I had a sort of premonition that something might happen. And I actually gave a hard drive of all of my work from Libya to that date to a colleague, Brian Denton. And I said, if we get taken or if something happens to me, can you please make sure my photos survive? And so that's the only reason why I still have that body of work from Libya. I had, you know, whatever I filed to the New York Times while I was on assignment, but I had a more comprehensive body of work because I had given a hard drive off a few days before. Mm. When I was, uh, when I finally made the decision to do a book of photography, I, um, it was really difficult because I do have millions of photographs. I've been photographing for 23 years uh, all over the world, and I don't consider myself the best editor of my own work. So I um, I started sort of making these folders of not only countries that I've worked in, but some of the bodies of work that have sat with me over time. And I made some phone calls and talked to some colleagues about book designers and book editors, because often a photographer will pair up with someone who can help sort of them through the process of, of how to put a photo book together. And I was given the name of Stuart Smith, who is based in London. He's done many, many books for many years. And I went to see him. And we established a rapport. And I sort of just dumped thousands of pictures onto him and said, okay, let's see what you think. Let's see what, you know, what your vision is. And, and he was familiar with my work. But I think once they started combing through the pictures, I kept going back every few weeks and, and um, over, over the course of about a year. And we finally sort of honed it down to pretty much what you see in the book, more or less. 
and it, uh, readers will see uh, that you take us through the time you spent um, uh, in Afghanistan and in Iraq uh, during the war, but also in uh, several countries, uh, African countries. And just again, I'm, I'm curious, as you look through this body of work, right, you said millions of photographs, do you see how, um, how you were able to take a picture? Did that change over the years? How did you uh, view these pictures today? Did you still see them as good photographs? Yeah, so no. I mean, uh, look, <laughs> I my first sort of trip that was into a dangerous place was to Afghanistan under the Taliban. And I made tr- three trips to Afghanistan before September 11th. And, you know, frankly, I was 27 years old. I was not a very good photographer. I didn't really have the tools to know how to photograph in a place where photography was illegal. Um, and ha- so how to sneak photos and work under pressure. And half my pictures were out of focus. Some are, you know, I had them developed. I was shooting film at the time. I had them developed in Pakistan, and they completely scratched all my negatives. And the sometimes the fixer wasn't working, which means um, so my negatives were half exposed. And so, you know, I would do it very differently if I could go in back into that situation now with the experience and the knowledge I have as a photographer. Uh, um, people can choose uh, many careers. How did you get into becoming a photojournalist? And walk us through what it was like to start your career, because you mentioned, I think, the first time that you were living abroad was in India, and you didn't have much money. (laughs) No. Um, So, no. I uh, was, look, I was raised in uh, Westport, Connecticut, and I was raised uh, in a family of hairdressers, essentially. And so it was a very, very creative household, one that really fostered creativity creativity and expression and you know so it was very artistic and a lot of fun and so my parents never put any sort of conditions on me or my sisters and said you must do this or you must go to college and you must become this and they just said follow your dreams and follow your heart and you'll be successful and so for me when I became interested in photography Um, I wasn't familiar with photojournalism. I didn't understand that you could tell stories with photographs and cover these international relations and politics with photography. So I moved to Argentina uh, right after college. I was 21 years old, and I moved there to learn Spanish. And it was really there that I became aware of pictures in the newspaper and how you can tell stories with pictures. And so I um, I started photographing there and, and managed to sort of talk my way into a job at the Buenos Aires Herald there. And um, and then I went back to the U.S. and started making my, making a name for myself in New York as a freelance photographer. I was freelancing for the Associated Press. And I never had any money. I was I was dirt poor. I always had about, if I was lucky, I had about $12 in the bank, and I was always struggling to buy cameras. And meanwhile, my sisters were leading a more conventional life and getting married, falling in love and getting married. And and my uh, father and his partner, Bruce, would help, they would pay for the wedding. And so I went to my father and Bruce with a proposal. And I said, uh, you know, I'm in my 20s and I have no interest in getting married right now. And would you advance me my wedding money (laughs) as if I was getting married now so I can buy my first cameras? And then by the time I care about marriage, I won't need your help. (laughs) So so that's how I got my first cameras. When you think about... um trying to get access uh, when you're oftentimes photographing very uncomfortable situations. Uh, How do you do it? How do you get them to trust you? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest part of being um, a photojournalist is is being able to get the people that I'm photographing to open up to me, to trust me, to be authentic. Um, a lot of that, for me personally, uh, I am very honest myself. I go in, I don't have sort of my cameras out. I go in, I sit down, I introduce myself, I talk to whoever it is that I'm going to photograph. And, you know, I explain um why I think it's important to tell their story and ask if they want to share their story. You know, I mean, they have a sovereign right to say no. Um, and many people say no to me. But I think the people who choose um, to speak with journalists and to open up and and to, to let me photograph them are people who understand that um, the effectiveness of photography and the effectiveness of, of getting their stories out because they can help other people too. Uh, when you think about um, being a woman, how did that impact your access to um, different countries because you weren't a man? I was thinking when you, I was looking at those pictures when you were photographing in Afghanistan uh, under Taliban rule. How did they how did they uh, interact with you? And at times, uh, was it dangerous? So, yeah, I mean, everyone uh, always asks me about my gender. And for me, being a woman has always been a huge advantage. I have been able to access women in countries that are segregated by gender. And so as a, a foreign woman, I have access to the women, but I also have access to the men because they sort of they, they allow me into most spaces. And so it's always been a great asset. And under the Taliban, it was uh, even more so because photography was illegal. So I could go into the women's hospital, for example, and the Taliban wouldn't come inside. So the women didn't mind if I took their picture. So and they wanted to show how devastating the conditions were there, how they had no medicine, how they they had very few doctors and nurses. And so they were very happy to have uh, someone there telling their story. And so they allowed me to photograph and the Taliban couldn't even come inside. Uh, I mentioned earlier what happened to you in Libya, but you'd also were kidnapped when uh, you were covering uh, a story in Iraq uh, during the war. And as a woman, when we think about safety, was that something that you worried about often? Yeah, I mean, it's something I still worry about. I just returned from Yemen, uh, and I was also in northern Nigeria over the last two months. And so I think I'm constantly thinking about my security and how to do these stories and, and do them, you know, there's always a calculated risk involved, but to do them uh, in a way where I can come back alive. I think... Um, I've been kidnapped twice, but I think, you know, anyone who does this job understands that these are some of the risks. And, you know, we are all willing to take them because we believe in journalism. We believe in the power of uh, photojournalism and also the importance of being there to bear witness, to tell these stories, to create a set of documents that's factual. Um, I think it's uh, exponentially important now where we have um, a president that talks about fake news a lot. Um, I think we need to uh, stand up and say, you know, journalism is a fundamental right and we are a society built on free press. Lindsay Adario is a photojournalist who's covered stories for The New York Times. I spoke with her before The Times published its series on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen that included gut-wrenching images of children who were starving to death. I asked her how photojournalists respond to criticism that images capturing suffering and death are sensational. There are millions of uh, Yemeni children, for example, on the brink of famine. And so, you know, 
yes, there's sensational images, but we're not creating that sensation. We're not creating that situation. We as photographers are going in to document the situation there because no one can get in. Very few photographers and journalists can get in. And that is sadly the reality. So it's not sensationalizing the reality. It is the reality. And so aid workers, governments, you know, we American citizens, our tax dollars are going to help support and perpetuate the war in Yemen. Now, that, in my opinion, is something we should be ashamed of. And so I think, you know, when perhaps Americans see these images of children who are starving, and this is all a result of the ongoing war in Yemen. So it's sensational, but it's the reality. And so the people, when I walk into a hospital, for example, and see children who are skin and bones, and their mothers are sort of thrusting their children toward me and saying, you know, show the world, show the world, my child, because they can't do anything else. And they only can hope that the international community will come in and act. And so I think, you know, it's not sensationalizing, it's more documenting what is actually there. Lindsay, how do you respond to along that question um, that your pictures are uh, more of a westernized view, that you're the outsider looking in uh, on uh, this photograph and uh, may not be able to capture exactly what's happening to that person? Of course. I mean, I can't change where I'm from. (laughs) I am a foreigner. I am a westerner. I do go into countries um, that are not my own. And so I think in an ideal world, we would have local people photographing their own wars. Um, but that's not always possible because, for example, a person photographing in his or her own country might be thrown in prison for free, for trying to for trying to express dissent against the government. You know, a lot of these countries are authoritarian. Um, journalists are routinely disappeared, kidnapped, uh, threatened, and killed. And so I think that... Um, foreigners have a bit more a bit more of a safety net and particularly Americans because until this point we've had governments who stand up for journalism and journalists and American citizens around the world and so I think you know I go in I try to be as empathetic and understanding and do my homework about the culture and the war or whatever is happening um, but at the end of the day I can't change where I've come from this is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. I'm talking with Lindsay Adario, an award-winning photojournalist. She's a Connecticut native whose work has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, and Time Magazine. Lindsay has a new book out called Of Love and War, which includes pictures from her time covering war and conflict around the world for more than two decades. After the break, we'll continue our conversation. And you can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Lindsay Adario is a photojournalist who grew up in Westport, Connecticut. Her career spans more than two decades and has taken her around the world, from Afghanistan to sub-Saharan Africa and beyond. Her first photo book came out recently. It's called Of Love and War. The pictures provide a glimpse into her career, but the book also includes personal letters and interviews that gives context to the people she's met and the stories she's covered. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Lindsay, to talk about um, how you cope with some of the trauma that you're seeing every day, because we are human, and it's hard. Uh, sometimes journalists are told uh, to keep your emotions at bay, but when you, again, are in these uh, very uh, delicate moments, and um, there's a, uh, an anecdote of you share a letter you wrote to your mother after um, seeing children in a, in a cancer ward uh, in Baghdad and how that impacted you. Yeah. I mean, I don't really subscribe to the journalists need to be hardened and keep their emotions at bay and be stoic. And that's not me. I mean, I I couldn't do this job if I was that type of person. You know, I sort of I care about everyone I photograph. I'm constantly plagued and tortured by the fact that I was born into a life of relative privilege and so many people around the world were not. Um, And so I, you know, for me, I go into situations, I talk to people, I sometimes I cry with them, sometimes I cry while I'm photographing, you know, I think this is all part of this job and having done this work for over 20 years. So I think what I wanted to do with this book is, is include some of that narrative, include some of the things that I was feeling when taking these pictures, the frustration, the sadness, the devastation, um, you know, the unknown, not, you know, there's one letter that I write that says, you know, I almost died today. And every day, I feel like I'm going to die, you know, and I think that was a reality at that point. And many people when they look at the New York Times, when they read the New York Times magazine or time, they don't understand that there is an actual person taking those pictures, risking their lives and getting very emotional. Lindsay, uh, what uh, made you keep doing your job time and time again, despite, you know, feeling these emotions, despite surviving uh, several times over uh, when, you know, you could have easily been killed when you were covering uh, the wars or in uh, delicate situations? Look, I believe in uh, journalism. I believe that the the world has a right and a and a they have a responsibility to know what's happening around the world, uh, especially if there are injustices against people and women and you know children. Uh, there are civilian casualties that take place in these wars. There are people starving. We need to know. You know, just because we live in a comfortable home in America where we don't have fighting on our doorstep, we can do something with our power as a nation. Around the world, people have looked to America to be sort of the police of the world, to go in when the, when when there's a genocide happening, when there's something happening. They turn to America to intervene. And we have to be principled and have integrity. And I think that journalists and journalism hold people accountable. And so it's very important to me, this work. It seems as uh, you follow uh, the work that you've done uh, through the years, Lindsay, you gravitate towards uh, issues that women encounter um, in other parts of the world, including in Sierra Leone. Can I ask you to describe, there's a a series of three photographs uh, where you are following uh, women who are um, delivering and uh, focusing in on the fact that there is a high maternal mortality rate in a place like Sierra Leone. The story of this 18-year-old who just delivered twins was especially heartbreaking. 
Yeah. So I, uh, in 2009, when I won the MacArthur Fellowship, I wanted to do something uh, more long-term. I wanted to do something, a series of pictures or stories where I wasn't necessarily getting them assigned to me from a publication. So I finally had money and I wanted to send myself and do these stories. So I started researching and I um, I learned that over 500,000 women a year were dying in childbirth for almost completely preventable causes. So 98% of those deaths were preventable. And uh, so I started looking into it and Sierra Leone uh, was one of the countries with the highest rate of maternal mortality. And so I went there. And I think at that time, there were about three OBGYNs in the whole country. And uh, there were very few doctors in the provinces, the remote provinces. And and so I went to the Magbaraka Government Hospital in, in, uh, in rural Sierra Leone. And when I got there, I met Mama Cisse. She was a young woman. Um, she actually was in school. And her father pulled her out of school to get married as a young woman and to have children when she was uh, about 15. And so she was pregnant uh, with twins. And uh, she delivered the first baby in the village. And the second baby wouldn't come out. And so her sister, who was a midwife, had uh, th- had thought ahead and, and knowing the maternal death rate in Sierra Leone, had sent an ambulance toward their village. And to get to that ambulance, Mama Sise had to take a canoe across a river after having just delivered a baby and with one still inside and then take that ambulance and drive about six hours over bumpy roads. And so when I met her, she was exhausted. But we talked. We talked for about an hour. Uh, I asked her all about her life and her studies. And and then she delivered the second baby. And I was recording video but also shooting stills. And I realized uh, the midwives, after she delivered her, her baby, the midwives were all sort of talking and concentrating on trying to revive the baby because that often happens. The baby had been inside her so long that it was almost unresponsive. So the midwives were all gathered around the baby. And I looked over and Mama Cisse was bleeding profusely. And I said, I think she's bleeding too much. And you know, I'm not a doctor, but it just didn't look right. And, and they were like, no, she's fine. And they sort of mopped up the blood. And and so then I went to try and find that one doctor uh, in the province, and he was in surgery. And so I put on scrubs, and I went into surgery. And, and I said, you know, I, I think there's a woman who's dying. And he sort of looked at me like I was crazy and, and said, you know, well, I'm busy. I'm in surgery. And so I went back, and they took her blood pressure, and it was 60 over 30. And so they picked her up, and, and I said, well, why don't we just bring her to the doctor's, like, doorstep, essentially, so when he comes out of surgery, she's right there. And he came out and took her blood pressure, and she was dead. And so I went back two years later uh, to a neighboring district in Sierra Leone uh, because at that point, Doctors Without Borders um, had told me that they had implemented an ambulance system sort of in response to the high maternal death rate. Um, because ambulances could help get women uh, to hospitals and to doctors, and that was one of the main reasons why women were dying in childbirth. And so with that ambulance system, they had determined that they lowered the maternal death rate by 60%, which is incredible. And so I went back, and I continued doing that work. And so the other two images in that series are, are from uh, 2012. Mm. Did it? Uh, did you feel good when you came back, knowing that this ch- policy, this uh, this uh, program, had been started? That maybe they, these pictures that you took helped make a difference. 
Well, they told me that um, they did. And, and what really, you know, sometimes I do this work and I don't realize if I'm making impact or not. And of course, I only hope I am. But it was uh, last year I spoke at the UN General Assembly. And there is uh, a doctor, Dr. Naveen Rao, uh, who was working at Merck. And um, he reached out to me after that Mama Cisse story came out, and he said, you know, I just want to meet you. And we were, I was living in India, and so we had tea, and he said, you know, your pictures have been very influential. And I sort of said, oh, thank you, you know. And so last year I spoke at the UN General Assembly, and uh, Dr. Rao was there, and he said, um, you know, do you realize that your pictures were one of the reasons why we put aside $500 million for Merck for Mothers, to start Merck for Mothers, because he said, I started showing that story of Mama Cisse to the board members, and people were so emotional that they said, we need to do something about this. And so he said, Merck for Mothers was founded in part on that series. Lindsay, I understand that you're a mother today. Has that changed the types of assignments that you're uh, willing to accept and uh, also your perspective behind that lens now? I mean, of course, being a mother, you know, I have a, it changes my perspective. I have, um, I feel like I need to stay alive in a way that I didn't necessarily feel before. Um, it's not that I wanted to die, but I knew and I accepted that, you know, I might get killed on one of these assignments. And so as a mother, it's, uh, it's harder. And I think, I decided to become a mother after having survived two kidnaps, after having lost so many friends, uh, being thrown out of a car on a highway in Pakistan, uh, been ambushed by the Taliban, ambushed by uh, insurgents like Al-Qaeda. So I've been through a lot. And so I think, you know, naturally I was reaching a point in my life where I was pulling back from the front line. Um, I've never felt myself a very good frontline photographer. For me, it's always been about the story sort of on the margins of war and the effect on civilians and women and children. And so, you know, it was sort of a natural combination when I became a mother. I was also reaching a point in my life and career where I felt I need to pull back a little bit, uh, also for my sanity. Your career is the focus of an upcoming movie. What can you tell us about it? Well, uh, right now, the movie is slated to be uh, directed by Ridley Scott, and uh, Scarlett Johansson is attached to play me. That's a pretty awesome choice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, It was optioned by Warner Brothers, so um, they are uh, controlling pretty much everything. So, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, when we uh, think back to your upbringing in Connecticut, you have this uh, lovely picture of your family when you were a little girl with your uh, sisters and parents. Um, how do you? How did they accept your career and um, you know wh- what you've been able to accomplish? Look, I don't think any of this would be possible without my family because I have been so lucky. I have the most incredible family. I have supportive parents. I have my sisters. uh, I have a great husband. I'm, you know, I'm very lucky. And I think that what keeps me going in so many of these tough situations is the fact that I feel empowered. I feel like I come from a a really solid base. Um, I'm emotionally stable. Um, and I'm resilient because I come from a place of, of stability and, uh, and of love. And so I think, you know, for me, my family is a huge part of who I am and, and why I became the woman I am. How often do you get back to Connecticut? 
I go back about twice a year. My parents are still there, um, and so I go back to visit them. And I have a grandmother who's 105, <laughs> and she's amazing, and she lives in New Haven. So I try and see her any chance I can. When you started your career, uh, the technology uh, has changed considerably. Now it's so easy to snap a picture on someone's phone. What does that mean for uh, the future of photojournalism and the craft that you've uh, that you've been working on all these years? Well, look, we live in a society where we're completely inundated by images day in and day out. And I think I've always believed that that doesn't really matter. I believe that the 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 images that sit with you, the images that resonate with you are ones that are uh, powerful and generally by professional photographers who have spent their lives creating these images and and documenting. Um, I think what's also important is to realize, you know, when you have a professional photographer, a photojournalist taking a picture, Along with the photograph, they have a responsibility to get the facts and they have to get the, the the caption and sort of the people in the photo, what's their situation, where are they coming from. And so it's not just a picture, it's also the information that goes along with the picture. And I think when you look at images uh, on Instagram or on the internet, you don't know the background of that picture. You don't know the photographer. You don't know if they have integrity. You don't know if the caption is factually correct. And so I think it's very important as a consumer of images to ask yourself those questions. Where are you getting those pictures? Is it reality? Have they been doctored? Those are all things that come along with also being a photojournalist, but also being a consumer of images. I should have asked you uh, at the start of the interview, there's this beautiful picture on the cover of your new book of love and war. How did you choose this particular photo? So there were uh, about five images I was contemplating to go on the cover, and and, uh, the book designer, Stuart, and his team also came to me with some images that they thought. And ultimately, we sent, um, I think, three options over to Anne Godoff, who is the head of Penguin Random House and my editor on this book. And and she chose this cover on the book. It's... it's, um, it's of a rebel with the Sudanese Liberation Army, and it's a man. A lot of people think it's a woman. And we had snuck into Darfur uh, in 2004 and walked in um, from neighboring Chad and hooked up with these rebels. And we drove around the desert with them for about five days. And every I don't know, hour or so, there was a sandstorm or the the car, the truck would break down and we were stuck in the sand. And, and so this was in one of those moments where uh, the truck had broken down and the rebels were sort of just sitting around. And, and this is that image. And Lindsay, uh, with this book, I mean, who do you want to reach? I want to reach... Um, not only photographers, but non-photographers. I want to reach people around the country, um, if not around the world, who don't, who maybe don't know so much about what happens outside of America, um, the issues that are that are still going on today. You know, maternal mortality. People seem to think, people tend to think that giving birth is just a fact of life, but it's not. It could mean death in many countries. Uh, you know, so so topics like that, refugees, people on the run, you know, we're talking about the caravan that's approaching the United States. And most people, you know, 
people don't really understand that the people in that caravan are human beings. They're mothers, they're children, they're people fleeing for their lives. So I want people to look at this book and have a better sense of humanity and have a better sense of what are the issues that drive people, that force people, compel them to leave their homes in the middle of the night. Uh, What does war mean? Um, You know, I included the wars that our country is involved in and has been involved in since September 11th because we've had a great influence on those countries. And so I think it's important for Americans to see. Can I ask where your next assignment is going to take you, Lindsay? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I just finished uh, northern Nigeria and Yemen, so um, I need to go home. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been home in a while. Lindsay Adaria, again, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist and author of this new book of love and war. She grew up in Connecticut in Westport, and today she joined us from the studios of NPR NPR in Washington, D.C. Lindsay, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We just heard from a journalist who, as part of her job, covers violence and suffering in places far from home. What's the impact on professionals who are exposed often to traumatic events? We'll talk with the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma after the break. And you can join the conversation, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Trauma can impact many professionals, including journalists. My next guest is executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of the Columbia Journalism School. Bruce, uh, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Lucy. And you're joining us from a studio at Columbia University. I understand you were a practicing journalist for many years, but tell us about this, uh, uh, when DART and your colleagues first started thinking about this relationship between journalism and trauma. Well, you know, back in the 1990s, there were a number of us around the country, some of us journalists, some clinicians, some uh, journalism teachers, um, who in various ways and for various reasons, all realized there was a huge gap, a tremendous amount of what counts as news involves the worst things that happen to people, Uh, hurricanes and murders and wars and um, refugee issues and torture. All of these things are important 
big disruptions in the social fabric. They all represent legitimate, important news. And yet, as journalists, in our toolkit, we we really had um, kind of very little training and very little preparation for interviewing, encountering, narrating the lives of people dealing with issues like post-traumatic stress disorder, dealing with the complicated uh, political and moral nature of victimization. So we, we started drawing those lessons together, uh, found a donor, um, a wonderful family named Dart who continued to support our work, um, and, and, and began this work. And, but as we did so, we swiftly came to the conclusion that not only did we, was there a vacuum around uh, how we report on survivors of violence, but also a big gap in what we know about how journalists ourselves are affected. I mean, for myself, I the very first news story I ever covered involved the untimely death of a young woman in my neighborhood in Chicago about my own age within a few years of being a very an ordinary community reporter on an ordinary beat. I had interviewed Vietnam veterans, Cambodian refugees, Holocaust survivors had covered a bridge collapse on I-95, all kinds of tragic events that are just part of the normal work of being a journalist. Um, this is a big load. And so we began to sponsor some research working with clinicians and researchers, and then develop training um, for newsrooms on both branches of this, both how to report on the aftermath of tragedy and also what how, how journalists can stay resilient, be effective witnesses, whether it's in frontline coverage or through deep immersion into issues like, you know, sexual abuse that we saw with the Spotlight store in the Boston Globe. All of this... Um, criminal trials, murder trials, all of this involves a heavy dose of pretty terrible experience. And, and we got to deal with that as a profession. Uh, when the DART Center was first starting out back in the uh, 90s, uh, there wasn't Twitter and Facebook uh, to, to add uh, to the load of, of how we, uh, you know, collect and disseminate information and what the audience has seen. So I'm curious if you could talk more about the role of technology, again, with when we're talking about uh, violent events and how we should be reporting and covering them. Sure. Well, first of all, of course, Twitter and Facebook and social media generally speed everything up and give us all a whole lot more information. And it doesn't matter there whether you're covering um, international affairs or a community tragedy. What comes at you through Twitter greatly accelerates the kind of amount of imagery, the amount of information you have available. Um, and actually, we saw this, you know, with Sandy Hook, which it should be said for those of my friends who are Connecticut journalists, they were, they not only had to cover a breaking story with information needing to be sorted through through social media, but needed to deal with loss in their own community. The, the uh, parents of one of the teachers who was killed were both Connecticut journalists. So this, you know, social media that connects us also implicates journalists even more deeply. But more important or more widespread than that, what social media has changed, especially in the last two years, I would say, is is given us a flood of user-generated content, 
often involving very graphic imagery. Think of police shooting video, the Philando Castile story, um, disaster coverage from her, video from Hurricane Maria, uh, beheading video from Syria. And in newsrooms all over the world, not only are journals having to make editorial choices about whether to post this stuff or not, but we're having to do what the public never sees, which is examine it closely, verify it, um, spend time deciding whether stuff is newsworthy. And this means that many, many hands are touching toxic imagery in newsrooms. And, and you know, 22-year-olds who most of the day are verifying cute cat videos suddenly have to verify a massacre. Um, that's pretty awful, and it's causing a lot of news organizations to examine their practices and to take this issue of vicarious trauma, um, to take it really seriously. The brain does not distinguish always between real threats out in the world and a steady diet of toxic imagery, and we as a profession are just coming to grips with that now. Bruce Shapiro is executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, a project of the Columbia Journalism uh, School, joining us uh, from the studios at Columbia. I want to take a, a quick call. Uh, Marianne's calling from Sandy Hook. Marianne, go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Marianne Jacob. I'm a survivor from Sandy Hook School, and I work as a uh, fellow for Every Town for Gun Safety. And I was very interested in the conversation about journalistic responsibility. I just spoke to another journalist about that yesterday, in fact, and you know, how coverage of these events often um, uh, further traumatizes the victims and, and those um, victims' families and, and, doesn't, and, and also glorifies the perpetrator of the crime in many ways. And Marianne, uh, because you said that you're from Sandy Hook and, and as a survivor of, of, what that, of what happened there, um, what would you like to see change? Well, I'd like to um, see in the immediate aftermath of a tragedy like this that, you know, so many of the journalists I spoke to in the immediate aftermath, they almost felt guilty, like having the conversations and, and some literally said things like, yeah, my boss said I have to be here. And people followed me home and knocked on my door in the hours and days following the tragedy. And, and you know, I think maybe taking a step back and talking about um, using that responsibility to report in a way that allows them to talk about um, prevention and and other things that are important to the conversation instead of, you know, you know, let's bring you into the home of a survivor and, you know, hear their terrible story, which really just further magnifies um, some of that trauma. Well, Marianne, thank you for your comments. I wanted to have uh, Bruce Shapiro respond uh, to what Marianne was saying. Bruce, we only have a couple of minutes, but go ahead. Well, first of all, thank you, Marianne. I mean, this is the conversation we, we need to promote and that the DART Center exists to promote. I would say that journalists in the aftermath of, of, of a horrible tragedy like Sandy Hook face a complicated set of responsibilities. Um, we do need to engage the rest of the world in what is happening. And the reality is that I think we have the ability when we do our job right to bear witness for families who have endured terrible losses for individuals who have uh, borne great suffering. Um, we try to promote best practices and balance what are often very difficult, conflicting ethical responsibilities, getting as much information out there as quickly as possible so the public understands the degree of what's happening and how to calibrate response, and at the same time, being respectful of survivors and the needs of folks to to heal. This is a 
big challenge, and it's it's a conversation that is very active within um, the journalism community. Bruce Shapiro, again, is executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Uh, obviously, we could talk about this a lot um, longer, but we appreciate the time you've given us. Glad to be here. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown and Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>